Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On today's show, we are joined by Fidelity ETF expert Etienne Yonkos Bouchard. He discusses various factors that he believes could be favorable in the current market environment and updates us on Fidelity all-in-one ETFs. Etienne discusses how value has a chance of doing well this year, but it's not a guarantee. It will depend on many upcoming factors, including getting fewer cuts than expected, the labor market remaining strong, large growth names continuing to work through challenging environments, and more. He explains it ultimately relies on the macro standpoint. If the rates are going up while there is less sensitivity to the change in the discount rate, with that, your net present flows become worth more than the companies that are discounting in the far future. Etienne also dives into the world of cryptocurrency, specifically how the SEC in America has given their approval of spot Bitcoin ETFs. This means that Canadian Bitcoin ETFs will lose a portion of its demand from American investors and their prices will also decrease given the aggressive fee structure and increase in overall volume. Please note Etienne presented slides to the audience during the live webcast. This podcast was recorded on January 12, 2024. Let's go straight to the flows first, if you don't mind, because it is a pretty fascinating story. Interest rates went up last year like they hadn't in a generation. And the yield on on the bond story, as well as some safety, seemed to really take the cake, didn't it? No, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head with some of those uh, comments you made in your introduction. The flows story for, for Canada, which was Another great year for the Canadian ETF industry. Uh, we're talking about 38 billion in net new assets, following up on about 35 in 2022. Really, some some strong momentum, and actually the second year in a row where ETFs have outsold mutual funds. So, from a vehicle standpoint, just looking at that outright, seems to be a trend that's continuing. Albeit, you know, ETFs remain about 16% of the total assets of mutual funds. In terms of categories that caught our attention, you mentioned it, fixed income really dominating the full year at around $22 billion, so a really uh, sizable amount. About 44% of that was in cash products, albeit, you know, like you mentioned, rates going up, that means short-term, short-term interest, if you will, was really attractive. We're talking north of 5% on a lot of these cash alternative products. In, in the ETF space, a lot of them fall into the category that we call high-interest savings ETFs. There's a number of them out there and, and those really were popular. But we saw as we got closer to the end of the year and really that rally in bonds where, uh, you know, the 10 year in Canada and the U.S. fell by about a percent in the span of a month and a half. You started to see an appetite for more duration in uh, the portfolio. So some of the longer bond products index, uh, you know, replicating type solutions. So which are, you know, more broad, but generally have longer durations also. So the Canadian uh, market, for example, is at around seven, seven point two. You saw some appetite there. Other few notable things that we noticed, large inflows into international and Canada relative to the U.S., albeit U.S. markets did exceptionally well from a performance standpoint. I know. I, I was going to say, like, sometimes there's a disconnect, right? Because you're looking at the flows, what people are interested in isn't necessarily where the success in hindsight was, but but there you go. Yeah, no, that, that was one of the more curious stories, right? Because usually you see performance lead and then flows follow. Right. Um, you know, this this time it was kind of it felt like a dip buying almost or maybe a diversification action by a lot of investors thinking uh, internationals lag for the better part of the, of a decade. Uh, it's very cheap from a valuation standpoint relative to the U.S. Norm, you know, understandably so. Earnings growth has been a bit slower. The economy over there is a little bit less productive. There's 
you know, historically, a lot of reasons behind that. And it's not for nothing that the U.S. has outperformed, but you've seen a bit of an appetite for adding international in, in, and that includes emerging markets. But I'd say most of it is is developed international. So think MSCI, IFE type uh, index products or uh, actually, on the international side, what's interesting is you generally see a more active and factor strategies being incorporated in the portfolio just because it's less of an efficient benchmark, if you will, than the S&P 500, which, yes, you can get at a very cheap price, but it's also very hard to beat uh, because of the large allocation to some of those mega cap growers um, as, as a large chunk of the portfolio. I mean, the Magnificent 7 represents close to 30 percent of that of that index now. Um, so, yeah, so that, that was one of the curious things that we saw last year also. Um, crypto, I mean, Bitcoin had a hell of a year from a performance standpoint, uh, more than 130% appreciation in price, uh, about a billion in flows. We would have thought that would have been a bit, uh, a bit larger, but I think a lot of the initial investors into Bitcoin ETFs in Canada, which were launched in 2021 are still a bit underwater, right? So just kind of, uh, maybe lost a bit of their appetite for, for those types of product for now. I think that will change, uh, yeah. a little bit as we go forward. Well, because based on two days ago, it's, yeah. it's sort of a different story in the United States. I mean, there's a whole new, there's a whole new world out there, literally in terms of options to go into this asset class. And it, and it does, we were saying previously, it, it is an asset class. Like the skeptics at this point have to at least admit that it's an asset class. It's there. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, you know, it was easy to, uh, put it aside in a year like 2022 when the correlation went to one with, you know, every risk asset was down. In 2022, right. so obviously Bitcoin did not act as what some uh, had hoped was that it was going to be an inflation hedge, which was not necessarily the case. Um, but generally it speaking, it, they're, they're, it traded as a risk asset. Business. Yes, exactly. It's exactly, and, and it, it, but it is another alternative asset class. We kind of view it more in that in that framework than than an inflation hedge, like say for example, gold has historically been. But the news that you mentioned is actually. Huge news. Two days ago, SEC finally approved spot Bitcoin ETFs in the US, something which obviously Canada has been a bit more lenient on because they have existed in Canada for a while. You know, there's crazy flows targets by you know, various market participants out there. Some people are saying 20 billion for the year. Some people are saying as high as 100 billion. I mean, I, I think time will tell, but you know, 20 billion, I think seems like a, a fairly conservative target to me. Um, you know, there is so far over the first couple of days, a lot of flows out of the, uh, other products that existed, which were futures based, notably Grayscale's product in the U.S. Um, but you're seeing now a lot of firms, including Fidelity, having really competitively priced products in the U.S. And obviously, you know, we're actually going to be changing that here in the, in Canada also to our product. Um, but it's just a big tailwind, I think, for the crypto industry and hence why some of the performance of last year we thought was because of the anticipation of these approvals coming in. So now it's going to be interesting to see how the asset class performs. But so far, it's actually responded quite positively. It hasn't been a sell the news uh, action so far anyways. OK, fascinating. And actually, we'll, we'll come back to crypto and, and to Bitcoin a little bit. We'll talk about the all in ones mm -hmm. in, in a couple of seconds. But I did I did want to kind of dig into the factors themselves. Actually, the thing I want to ask you about the most is just what the heck you thought of momentum at the end of last year. I mean, that was really something, actually. To your point, uh, Pamela, momentum is it's starting to work in the, in the way the momentum. It's always backward looking. Right. But if you look at the three month numbers in Canada and the U.S., it was the best performing factor. So I guess the last quarter of the year. And that's because it also started to adapt and change as the year went on. Right. Because you're always looking at 
in our case, for example, the way that we build our momentum ETFs is we look at 12 minus one performance, so 12 months minus the last month to avoid kind of things that spike. We also look at earnings revisions and volatility adjusted performance. And now it's looking a lot more like, you know, tilted towards growth. Whereas at the start of the year, it was more low vol in value and especially value oriented, if you will, because that's what had worked in 2022. So it took some time to get started, but you're starting to see that work a little bit more now, especially in North America. That seems to be uh, a good trade for the year, which, and that's, once again, we, we kind of bring it back to kind of where we are in this cycle, because last year, our prescription, if you will, for the year was to focus on quality and low volatility because we felt we were in a late cycle environment. The economy was set to slow to a certain extent, uh, which it did, uh, but maybe has resisted a bit better than in our anticipation. Uh, nonetheless, quality for the most part was the best performing factor. You know, take a few exceptions. It's very close in Canada and iffy markets. But if you look at it from a global standpoint in the U.S., it was the leading, leading investment factor. Uh, so we really like that story that then we're continuing to kind of like that as we go into 2024. But, you know, now we're kind of thinking, well, where do we find ourselves in this cycle? Are we going back to the mid part of the cycle and kind of the soft landing thesis is actually going to play out, which was everybody with the inverted yield curve was like, there's no way we're not getting a real reset, like a full full blown recession. Well, that could be the case in the US. And we're just kind of in that pivot right now where, yes, we still like some of the late cycle ones, but you know, maybe uh, if we get a broadening of, of, of returns from a sector standpoint, from a stock standpoint, and we see the economy kind of just bounce off a, a slowdown and recover, well, maybe some of the early cycle stuff like value, which is still really cheap, can, can have a good year. So yeah, diversification, I think, when we start this year to kind of have as an outlook. But historically, looking at the macro, we would recommend some more stuff that's late cycle, uh, like momentum and quality. I've heard you say before, I think, that you're you're sort of a mean reversion person. <laughs> so yeah. like, Boring that way. Like you sort of think that way. And so, so what is that? Maybe, maybe that adds on to what you just said in a way. Like, I'm, I'm just curious. There's certain things that work, but then things do change. I, there's, there's a big question of what we were sort of setting up for in 2023. Will it come to the fore in 2024? That, that's not the consensus, it appears. I mean, not at all, the, that type of thinking. But I'm sort of curious how you look at things. Yeah, it applies to the, uh, everything. <laughs> I mean, versions wow. that when you have anomalies one way or the other, they tend to not replicate each other. And from a factor standpoint, it's actually a little bit surprising because uh, like value did reasonably well when you would anticipate it not to have done well coming off of 2022 and kind of being uh, from, from a relative standpoint here, I'm talking. Um, so, you know, things that I'm thinking about from a mean reversion standpoint aren't necessarily factor focused. And if I could say it that way, well, small cap is a factor to a certain extent, like size, size bias, but, you know, small caps have done terrible for the past you know, uh, other than 2020, when you saw a massive rebound and a lot of smaller growth companies, notably uh, into the end of the year, it's been a tough place to invest. Emerging markets, kind of the same bonds. Like we were looking at the bond market and you have two negative consecutive, uh, two consecutive negative years um, and, you know, double digit negative return in 2022. That's an area where it's like, that's somewhere where the reversion to the mean to us was exceptionally strong. And we saw that into the end of the year. And maybe we're a bit uh, early in making that call last year, because I remember in Q1 and Q2, we were already kind of um, setting the table for a rebound in, uh, in fixed income markets, and we got it only in Q4. Uh, we still think that bonds have some some room to run here, 
uh, albeit spreads are fairly tight, but you know, yields, if you look at the US ag is still north of the 90th percentile in terms of, of just, uh, outright yield, uh, over the past 15 years. So it's not a, a bad entry point. And I don't think investors should feel like they've missed out, uh, you know, because we've had a good rally over the past two months. And that's, you know, that's one of the mean reversion themes, if you will, that we're looking at. Um, value's just done a bit too well for what we expected to say it's really fallen into that camp. Um, but small caps, definitely emerging markets. Yeah. Okay. XUS. So, XUS. Well, you know, I was going to ask that. I mean, it, we're sort of, we're, we're always watching the dollar story itself. And, and last year, a lot of people thought was setting up for XUS as well. And it, it didn't turn out that way, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I want to just also ask you about the story of active, actively yep. managed ETFs. I think most of us know the story on passive, but just this where where the sweet spot is in terms of active. Take us to that point because you, you guys do this well. So there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, we had the, I guess just as a, to lead off, uh, we had the opportunity to launch some mandates that we've had as mutual funds in ETF versions in May of last year. So bringing, you know, some of our active capabilities to the ETF marketplace in Canada. And that's been very successful. And I think there is demand for that. So having active management, but in the ETF vehicle, uh, for a lot of investors and advisors simplifies things. Uh, but you know, they're still looking for, you know, uh, a specific type of management, uh, a manager that, uh, you know, that has a philosophy that resonates with them, that has a management style that can benefit from current environment, et cetera. Uh, so I think active has a real place to play. And like you mentioned in your intro in the U.S. has really been a strong growth area. Uh, they usually lead us by a number of years in terms of product development. We actually beat them in, for Bitcoin. We beat them for a few other things. But, you know, from a, a market trend standpoint, we usually are a little bit behind in Canada. And uh, you're seeing a lot of firms, including Fidelity, launching more and more ETF series of, of funds, uh, which are actively managed. Right. So I think that continues as we move forward. Uh, there is a certain only a certain amount of passive types of or, you know, market cap weighted type strategies that we can have out there. Um, and you know, it seems like it's saturating a little bit because even when I started back in 2018, um, passive was about 76% of AUM on the ETF side. Now it's about 68, 67%. So it right. passive still, passive is still much bigger. Um, yeah. but you know, active and smart beta were slowly clawing away with, you know, kind of last year actually was uh, a little bit of a down year for factor, uh, based strategies. Um, but, but it, it was tough to, argue because it's just how strong uh, the performance was for a product like, you know, uh, an S&P 500 index product. But really? I think as we move forward, it's a trend that, that will continue for sure. Do you want to look into sort of how things have done adding on to that sort of peers beaten? It's been a strong year, I think, ultimately, when you, when you sort of look at, this is going back to flows a little bit, but but I am kind of curious how how it's how it's been as a year for you, like ultimately how things have compared. Yeah. So when we look at individual factor strategies, like, like I mentioned, so when you have a very strong concentration from performance, if you look at the U.S. market in particular, it was seven stocks that drove the market right up until the end of October. Actually, the Magnificent Seven represented 100.5% of the total return as of October 31st, finished the year at around 60%, which is still sizable, but by no means is it uh, as, <laughs> how could I say, as shocking, if you will, as 100%. Which actually was a good, uh, good sequence for us in the last three months from a factor standpoint, because you had other stocks which display 
uh, more traditional fundamental investment theses other than obviously, yes, these companies are, are, you know, are growing at a good pace. They generate a ton of free cash flow. They don't need to lever themselves to grow, meaning they can grow org organically because of their free cash flow generation and their margins. But that impacted other areas, like even quality, which historically will have allocations to some of these names. I was looking at, uh, at um, attribution last year for our US high quality ETF. Uh, right. It lagged the S&P 500 uh, slightly. Well, one of the reasons is because in the consumer discretionary sectors, well, Amazon doesn't have the best margins in that sector and it doesn't have the best return on invested capital, but it performed exceptionally well. So there, there's some things like that that is very hard and challenging for us to adapt to when it's being led by specifically growth and growth expectations, because that doesn't to us qualify as a given factor per se. So uh, you have areas that work, areas that don't work. But when you have a very concentrated leadership, it's tough to follow when you're basing your, your decisions on fundamental characteristics. Yeah, no, it's so fascinating. It's, I mean, it was, it was tough for a lot of different strategies. Other than that, last year, if, if we can just go back to the value, which, as you said, on, on a relative basis did, did quite, you know, good well. Does that hold true for next year? We're talking a lot about still, you know, versions of looking at the equal weight rather than looking at the S&P 500, rather than looking at it you know, on a different basis, the breadth story. So does value still have a, a pretty good chance this year? How do, how do you stack that up? I, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I think it depends really on, on the way that things play out from a macro standpoint. So if you look at it, when value worked is when rates were going up and you had less sensitivity to to a change in the discount rate because so your your present cash flows were now worth more uh than those companies that were you know discounting cash flows way into the future um so how does that work this year well maybe if you know we get less cuts than expected uh it also works if we have a soft landing and we have an economic recovery that's sustained if the consumer shows strong resilience the labor market stays strong and we kind of get uh, more of a early to mid cycle feel than one of late cycle where everybody wants those quality, large growth names because that's what's resilient and that's what's working through this challenging environment. So if you get ba basically a better macro picture, should help value. And, you know, where I think it could work, especially like I mentioned with regards to rates is, uh, I was looking at it yesterday i mean we had the cpi report in the us i think it was yesterday or two days ago uh two days ago i believe and you know it was higher than expected and yeah, it was yesterday, rate, yesterday. And, and rate yeah so yesterday and rate expectations did not move basically the market said or called a, a bluff or that the, the fed is going to be handcuffed to a certain extent is basically in the us uh on, if you look at uh, index swaps the overnight index swaps market we're still pricing in six cuts for the year that's what the market is anticipating. And that seems like it's fairly aggressive. And maybe that's the, well, we know that's the narrative that helped bonds in the last, you know, part of the year. It's also the narrative that helped the growers. So sure. if, you know, for example, we only get two or three cuts and the market has to kind of shift its tone again, uh, or, or I guess if the Fed shifts its tone again and the market reacts to it, that could be positive for value on a relative basis. It doesn't mean value is going to have an exceptional year, but on a relative basis could outperform in that scenario. But, you know, if, if we get, if rates stay higher for longer and the economy uh, gets a really good soft landing type uh, environment and, and we kind of just keep churning, I could see value doing uh, quite well because you get a broadening of returns um, from 
definitely from a sector standpoint. Yeah, so fascinating to, from a sector standpoint and even just like the whole breadth story. So uh, here are a couple of questions. So going back to, let's go back to crypto here. What is the effect of the SEC Bitcoin approval on Canadian Bitcoin ETFs, do you think? I mean, there is dem there there was demand a little bit from U.S. investors into Canadian listed uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs. So maybe we lose a bit of that. It's just easier to trade on a, on a domestic in, uh, exchange. It might drive prices down a bit. Uh, fees, uh, right? Because they did come out with a bit more of an aggressive fee structure. That is entirely normal. It's a significantly larger market. The more volume you have, maybe you can compress your margins a little bit from an asset management standpoint. Um, I think that's going to be some of the stories, but I don't think it's going to have a material impact on, uh, on, on the Canadian marketplace, if you will. Um, the only thing I'd say is probably it's actually positive. I think it's just going to reinforce the fact that, you know, this is an asset class that's now being adopted more widely and that I think investors get more comfortable with. So to a certain extent, it's, I think it's even positive uh, with a light, slight exception. I said that, you know, if there were any U.S. investors that had Canadian listed ETFs in their portfolios, maybe they're reallocating that back home. Yeah, fascinating. Could be a, a lifting of all boats type type effect. So here's a question based on, on some of these you're talking about. There is there a significant delta between active ETFs and traditional mutual funds? So I'm not quite sure exactly what the question is with regards to like delta. Is it from a performance standpoint, I imagine, or yeah. fee standpoint, maybe? But I, I I can kind of address it. Uh, realistically, anyways, in the ways that we've structured the methodology is. It is a, a series of of the existing funds, so it's it's the same pool of assets, right? Uh, the the portfolio manager doesn't notice the difference. He sees money coming in, whether it's from the ETF or from or from you know from Fundserve through uh, transactions that are done through Fidelity. Uh, so from that standpoint, not big a, not big of a difference. From a performance standpoint, should not have an impact at all. So you should have very very uh, similar performance. Uh, the fees will be the same. Uh, so there should not be any significant differences. Yeah, the main difference is when you're trading an ETF, yes, you will have a spread. So maybe your ACBs would be a little bit different. That being said, you're trading throughout the day. So that's where the differences in performance will be just because on timing of transactions. But uh, if you look at like, uh, you know, on fidelity.ca and you compare the ETF series versus the F, series, F class or F series, it, it should be pretty much identical. Okay, perfect. Uh, another question. So let's get, this is a question about the all-in-one. So let's, let's dedicate the next, the rest of the show to this. Give us a bit of an update. And this specific question is, is high dividends included within the yeah. all-in-one? Yeah. Okay. So, so, so great, great question. Uh, I, I guess I'll, um, I'll, I'll take a few minutes just to kind of go over what the all-in-ones are for those that maybe don't, uh, know, know the product. So the question, uh, from, from somebody on the line is, uh, whether one factor was incorporated in those products. Those products are fully diversified kind of turnkey solutions where we systematically rebalance equity components, which are factor-based global products, right? So we have some Canadian factor ETFs, some US factor international. We've got some bond mandates for three of them. One of them is a 100% equity solution. The three others, uh, we have a balanced version, a growth version, which is 85-15, uh, 60-40, and then all the way to a 40-60, so 60% fixed income. And really kind of these multi-asset complete portfolios that are really simple for advisors and investors to use uh, and offer, you know, really strong diversification throughout uh, a given business cycle. And uh, we're actually coming up on the three-year anniversary for those products in, Jan uh, in January, so January 26th. And so far, they've been uh, really outstanding from a performance standpoint. 
Um, so we're really excited about that. You know, everybody keep your eyes and, and ears open. Uh, we're going to be talking about it from a marketing standpoint. Uh, but to answer the question of, uh, of our person in the audience here, high dividend is not included in the all-in-ones. Uh, the four other factors that we have, value, low vol, momentum, and quality are, why is dividend not part of the mix? The main reason is because it has a very strong correlation to value. Um, so if we included both of those, you'd actually basically get an overweight to uh, a more cyclical value style. Because uh, when you think about it, if you're screening for yield, dividend yield to a certain extent, it's kind of like an inverse of a price to earnings, right? It's a, it's a, it's a yield on a distribution instead of um, an actual earning. But to a certain extent, if you have dividends to pay out, it's because you earned, you know, you had earnings, you had free cash flow. Um, so it is somewhat of a value me valuation metric. So you end up selecting a lot of the same names. There will be differences from a sector standpoint, obviously, but it does rhyme. So the idea is it actually hurts our diversification when we incorporate both. Uh, and over the long term, value's shown a bit better alpha, not to say that dividend hasn't provided alpha over the long term, uh, but value's just had a bit uh, a bit more upside capture, if you will. It's it's a great sort of overview of it. I, I wonder also with the all-in-ones, like let's just bring back that discussion that there is a little bit of Bitcoin in them. Uh, take us through the reasoning behind that. And that reasoning goes back like what a couple of years at least. Yeah. So as, as soon as we launched our Bitcoin ETF, uh, you know, it was to us, it made sense to incorporate it as part of a broader asset mix. Uh, so obviously we've got our equities factor base. We've got some active bonds. We've got some systematic bond mandates also in there. And then the other part of the pie was crypto. But we realized that it's an asset class that's about 10 times the volatility of equities. So we have to do it with in or in um, a restrained manner or controlled manner where it's not uh materially impacting the volatility of the portfolio, but is helping a little bit to diversify and then giving us some exposure to that asset class, which we believe will be around for, for years to come. So dependent on the risk profile of the portfolio, you're getting between one to three percent allocation. Um, and if I look at the balance version, uh, it's two percent. And it was a good contributor last year. Thankfully, we had some Bitcoin in there. It helped helped our total return, you know, but if you look back at 2022, everybody was saying, you know, why do you have Bitcoin in your portfolio? You know, so it, it is controversial. I'll admit yes. that. Uh, but in the long term, we think it adds to the sharp ratio of the portfolio so long as we don't add too much and throw off the volatility profile of the portfolio. And thankfully, uh, you know, we outperformed the majority of our peers, actually, uh, almost all of them um, over 2022 and 2023. So Bitcoin, yes, has had an impact, but not material enough to offset the good work we're doing on the factor side and also on the bond side in the portfolio. And the ETFs are across well, the, the different versions of them. They're all core. Just just to leave leave our audience with this. There are four mandates. They're all core. Now, it just depends on the risk profile of your investor. You know, are they looking for something that's fully equity? I usually see that. Yes, it's a core equity mandate, but it still is 100 percent equity. But, you know, the, the two most popular ones that we have are the balance and the growth version. So an 85, 15, give or take, and then a 60, 40, give or take. And I think those two are more popular asset asset mixes for Canadian investors anyways, albeit we do see the equity one being used also. And the conservative, well, for, for those investors that are maybe closer to retirement or closer to the investment objectives could be uh, useful. But the one thing that you can be sure as is that the diversification effect in all of them uh, or the diversification story is the same for all of them, which is, you know, diversification through factors, active bonds, and and just a complete, uh, you know, systematic rebalancing process that we have. 
it, it could be a really exciting year and we're glad that you've helped us kick it off, uh, particularly through the lens of ETFs. Thanks, Etienne, for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.